some of these things are just, they become apparent when you read the Bible really carefully. And I think that's, that's really the challenge is you don't have to be, you don't have to be a scholar to realize that in that the days of creation don't match um, and that there's contradictions in the two creation narratives. You don't have to be a, a Hebrew scholar to just know that because you can see that in English, <laughs> you know, and the same with noticing that David kills Goliath and then Elhanan kills Goliath. Like you can read that in English. And so I think it's not so much, do we know Hebrew? It's, are, have we been reading our Bible carefully? We usually inherit a certain framework for what the Bible is, what these stories mean from a very young age. And so I think we kind of turn our brains off by the time we're teenagers and in our 20s, and we no longer read the Bible carefully. We just reaffirm and concretize that interpretation we've always been receiving since we were kids. So I'm a big advocate for, you don't have to be a scholar, but if you take your time and just read the Bible carefully, you'll run into a lot of problems. And I mean that in the best possible way. comes before Hey everybody, welcome back. I am Seth and I'm so glad that you were here. Before we get going, would you do me a favor? As of recording this, I think there's 98 reviews on iTunes. Let's just make that 100. It's one of those things that the algorithms decide, oh, other people like this. And so this new person looking for, you know, a podcast talking about God, you know, they may enjoy this. And so that's, I'm sure it's a small part, but go in and rate and review the show on iTunes. I would appreciate it. You would appreciate me appreciating it. I feel like you would anyway. A couple other brief announcements. So remember, really appreciate it if you would think about supporting the show on Patreon. This show could not be done without the support of the patron supporters. Man, I just, there's there's no way to adequately describe the impact that y'all that do that have had on just this show's ability to continue and you know my life personally and the relationships that have grown from that and so I would encourage you jump into that if you've ever been on the fence or this show speaks to you in any way I would greatly appreciate it there is also I decided I wanted some merchandise for myself and so I made that and you'll find that at can I say this at church.com. You'll click a button that says store and a couple different things. Check that out. See if you find something you like. And if you don't, let me know. And I will figure out how to make it. Anyway, here we go. The conversation today is with Jared Bias. And we talk about truth. We talk about the Old Testament. We talk about certainty. And we talk about idolatry because all of those things can be idolatrous, but mostly certainty and the way that we view truth. It's a very fun conversation. I laugh quite a bit in it. Uh, and those are always those are always near and dear to my heart. And um, as you'll hear in the beginning of the episode, Jared coming back uh, is, is is deeply meaningful because, um, well, I don't want to spoil it. You'll literally hear it in the few minutes of the episode. And so here we go. I'm gonna roll the tape with Jared Bias. Jared Bias, welcome back to the show, man. I'm going to um, firstly say thank you, but you, you'll understand why in a minute. So I think I told you last time, but you're actually the first person that said yes to come onto the show. And so 
I don't know what episode this will be when this airs. Let's say 95. And if it's not, then I'm not fixing that in the edit. A lot of that is because you said yes, as opposed to discouraging this idiot from Virginia. So welcome back to the show, man. Hey, that's, I really appreciate that. And uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's my honor. I mean, I had a, I remember, distinctly remember having a great time and especially Seth, your just genuine curiosity and humility in the process. So that stuck out to me for sure. So it's great to be back on. Well, what has changed? I don't necessarily need your story of you because for those that want to hear that, I think it's like episode two, one, three, four, (laughs) something like that. It's been a long time ago, almost two years, which doesn't seem like it's been that long. So what has changed, you know, from 2017 to now? What's new in your world? Well, um, you know, the podcast, The Bible for Normal People has, uh, I think we've remained pretty consistent in our mission to bring the best in biblical scholarship to everyday people. And uh, so I don't think a lot's changed there. I'm still really passionate about that. And I think uh, maybe I've gotten better at talking to normal people, but um, <laughs> I think that's uh, that's about it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm working through a book right now and just thinking of like all the concepts that are come to mind are the concepts that I've really been trying to work out for probably the last seven or eight years since I left being a pastor. And um, yeah, so I'm just trying to, continue to work all that out. Yeah. What qualifies someone as a normal people? What 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 are the minimum parameters to be we, a normal we get that, people? We get that all the time. It's like, well, I'll listen to your podcast, but I don't know if I'm normal. <laughs> and of course, all we mean by that is someone who didn't go to seminary and mm. doesn't know all the big words and still wants to learn how to be a faithful Christian, but doesn't necessarily have the pedigree. Um, and so that's that's what we, we want to bring all these really smart concepts that can be helpful to people and just translate them for everyday people. I had someone, a friend of mine that went to seminary that said, um, what I'm doing with this is like a miniature version of seminary in real time. And I don't know if I agree with that because I've never been to seminary, but being that you do something similar, is it? Yeah, I I think so. I, I mean, I really think that is the, that's the, the mission. I think I do would agree. I think you do the same thing and it's, but in actually in sometimes a more entertaining format and in a way that's a little bit more uh, accessible, relatable. Mm. So, mm. yeah. I hope so. Well, um, so I figured I started out with a very important question and that's going to be Carson Wentz. Uh, I feel like we said this last time, but I don't know how you're an Eagles fan being from Texas, but I mean... You're going to get me into trouble with with all my I, my, my family. Hopefully it doesn't listen to this. Well, I'm assuming that they know that you're an Eagles fan. They do. They do. It's just something we don't talk about. So now you're bringing it out. Well, I mean, that's... they can. Thanks a lot. Just hit fast forward by 30 seconds. How do... like So how do you feel about him? Because y'all have like four quarterbacks and you want to pay all of them QB1 kind of money. And that has yeah. nothing to do with church or the Bible. But I don't care. Like, how well, is how that you, sustainable? How you win championships is is it though? <laughs> yeah. Well, I I don't know. Let's just check two years ago. I think. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that year you had a rookie getting paid nothing that did the job of a guy that busted his <laughs> knee getting paid all the money, who just got all the money again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, I, yeah. I'm I'm not sure how I feel about that at this point. I. I'm learning through also being a 76ers fan that you have to trust the process, you know. How did you get all in on Philly teams? Well, I'm I'm still very much loyal to the Mavericks. Um, mm. So I actually flew out to see Dirk's last game just uh, two months ago. I saw that so, somewhere. You put a picture up of an airplane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, I'm a so Spurs like, fan, but that's so okay. So I'm definitely still loyal to the Mavericks, but I'm a, I'm a 76ers fan too. But I, I grew up hating the Cowboys, so it just was so fitting to me that I <laughs> that I ended up in Philadelphia. So. I had a guy ask me once, he's like, why, why the Cowboys? You know, you're in Virginia now and you still root for them. I'm like, well, when I grew up, it was the Oilers or the yeah. Cowboys, and the Oilers were so good that they packed up shop, changed their name, and moved to Tennessee, <laughs> so it wasn't the Oilers. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so... But that's why I didn't like Dallas. I didn't like Dallas because they were always so good, and I just didn't like football. But that's mm. all anyone ever wanted to talk about. It's Texas. So, so. yeah. Um, so, question. Uh, I want to make sure. So, while I have you on, I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, where you're at, are you, would you lean more towards, I'm more of an expert, and we'll use those terms loosely, uh, better versed in Old Testament as opposed to New Testament, correct? Correct. Yeah. So I have a lot of people tell me that when we read the Bible, and so we could define what the Bible is, but let's not, that we don't do it in a narrative way. What does that even mean? Like I was talking with a guy the other day and he said the same thing. He's like, yeah, it's not written this way. We read it wrong. Formatting matters. Everything matters. And so you need to read it as a narrative, but there's multiple narratives and there's multiple types of literature. And so how do I read it in a narrative way? What does that even mean? Right. Uh, well, there's, there's the idea of, of narrative theology, which I think someone like Daniel Kirk, who we've had on the podcast, does a really good job with in the New Testament. And he talks about it through Mark and doing narrative theology in that way. But I, yeah, I agree. I think there's a few ways to look at that. One is making sure we understand the Bible is literature. And so there are ways in which we are triggered to read certain things certain ways. So I think it's important to recognize the Bible is literature. That was a big thing, I think, probably in the 80s and early 90s of this like renaissance of, oh, yeah, hey, guys, the Bible is literature. And all the things that you know about literature, they apply to the Bible, too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like um, I, I had a professor who constantly said is like a mantra that says uh, genre triggers reading strategy. So meaning if you know the genre that triggers the strategy used to read it. And so it's really important to identify the genre of what you're reading. So if you're reading, uh, if you're reading poetry, you have to understand Hebrew poetry and how that would have been written and understood in that time. And uh, if it's if it's su- supposed to be, um, you know, like I-, I wanted to put some things like historical fiction, which would have been not a genre that they would have recognized. Um, and that's I think where we also get into trouble is we have all these categories now that they just wouldn't have had back then. Mm-hmm. And so in some scientific or uh, historical critical way or literary criticism, it helps us It helps us to identify it. We put it in our categories. But we have to realize that that's, that is anachronistic, meaning back then they wouldn't, we wouldn't have understood what we were talking about. So they blend and blur things. Like for instance, we would maybe consider the, uh, the historical books. We call them the historical books. I think it's very telling that in the Jewish Bible, they call it the former prophets, um, things like Samuel and Kings. Hmm. Samuel and Kings aren't historical books in the Jewish tradition. They're the former prophets. And so that's, that's important distinction. Like we've already pigeonholed what it is by calling them the historical book, um, Samuel Kings. And also, you know, interestingly enough, kind of going down that same rabbit trail in, in the Jewish Bible, the last books of the Bible are first and second Chronicles they end with first and second chronicles for very like purposeful reasons. But in the Jewish Bible, 
there's three sections. You have your Torah, which is your law and instructions, the first five books. You have your Nevi'im, which are the prophets, which include things like Samuel Kings. Mm -hmm. And you have the Ketuvim, which is just the writings. And Chronicles is in the writings. Like it's in the other stuff. And that's actually, that says a lot. Again, so if we're thinking like genre triggers reading strategy, I always like looking at how the how Judaism uh, categorizes its texts because they just have such a deeper, in my understanding, usually a deeper, richer tradition. And they can it says a lot. Um, like Daniel isn't in the prophets, it's in the Ketuvim. And so that says something about how they held those books. Hmm. And just to kind of finish that thought, that's why if you go to Barnes & Noble and look for a, a Jewish uh, Bible, it's called the Tanakh. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's those three sections, T and K, are, um, span, stand for uh, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So. so that's an ac- I didn't know. It was an, well, I don't know if acronym is the right word. Um, right, that's why I didn't use it. But I, yeah, I think it's an acronym, right? T and K, Tanakh. But, well, I don't know what the yeah. A's in there matter. Maybe they're just, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, those are just vowels to get you to say the Tanakh, T-N-K-H, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the phonetic pronunciation of the three letters. Right. Yeah, so why then? So I've never heard that about Chronicles. Um, I've heard that about the Tanakh, um, but honestly, it was only maybe in the last two, three years, so I got a copy of Bibliotheca, and he has brick broken, brick desegregate. I don't know what the word is, reordered it in, in, in a very different mm-hmm. way. And so I found myself as I was reading, uh, taken out of context, uh, where what I thought would be there was not there. Uh, and it did change. Like it changed. I don't know if it changed the way that I read scripture because it was in a different order or if it changed it because it forced me to think about things in a different pattern. I don't actually know, but why does that matter? Like Chronicles being at the end, why does that matter? Well, it matters for two for two reasons. One would be, it's very it's interesting that the Christian Bible ends with these minor prophets that uh, basically, quote unquote, prophesy the coming of the Messiah. So you end the Old Testament with this trajectory toward the New Testament. That's very intentional, where Chronicles ends with a, a retelling of the history of Israel in a post-exilic setting. And so, you know, the, the questions that Chronicles is answering the questions Chronicles are answering are different than the questions that Kings is answering. So it's no, there's no doubt that Chronicles is, is basically sitting there with Kings open and rewriting that narrative. Hmm. And it's clear that as you read through that, there's a reason why Chronicles looks the way it does. It's, it's asking different questions. So if, if Kings is asking the question, why are we in exile? So Samuel King seems to be a book that's asking that question. Why are we in exile? And that's why the kings in that story are so bad. Um, and the classic example of this is King Manasseh, who's like the worst king, who does all these, has all these, commits all these atrocities, leads Israel into uh, idolatry, and it ends with him being despised and an abomination in God's eyes. And then Chronicles has this telling of Manasseh, where he's actually taken down to Babylon, and then he repents, and then God restores Manasseh. And all is well. Hmm. Well, that's not in Kings. That's not how that story happens. They're like, those are not the same story of this King Manasseh. And the reason is, is because Chronicles is written at a different time with a different purpose in mind. The question now isn't, why are we in exile? Because Chronicles is written post-exilic. It's, it's written after the exile. They come back into the land. And now the question, are we still God's people? Now they're in this desolated space and they've just been the very thing that that they thought God had promised back in Samuel, Second Samuel seven, I guess fourteen or fourteen seven, you know that we'll have forever a, a king 
uh, from the line of David sitting on the throne. They didn't have that. They were thrown into exile for you know several decades. They come back, and now they're wondering what what just happened. Are we still God's people? And so that's why you would expect then the very boring for us beginning of Chronicles is just chapter and chapter after chapter of genealogy mm-hmm. because they're trying to connect their story with the pre-exilic people and asking that question, are we still God's people? And so the story of Manasseh is an answer to that story. Yes, like Manasseh repents, even the worst um, can still come back and still be connected to God's people and still be a part of this uh, grand thing. So yeah. I think that's important to recognize why Chronicles then is at the end is because it's asking that question, which is a much more uh, rich and important question, meaningful question for the Israelites at that time. I want to re-clarify something. In Chronicles, it's still not giving you any of the genealogy or it is. I just, I don't read the Old Testament as much as I should. So Chronicles, yeah, begins with this like chapter after chapter of of genealogy. genealogy. So then how would that then relate uh, for you and I with, I believe it's Matthew that also begins with the genealogy all the way up. Although I feel mm-hmm. like it's different than Chronicles, but I'm, this is from memory and I don't have it in front of me. Uh, well, I have a different version that doesn't have verses in it in front of me, which won't be helpful. Is that intentional? Like we're going to do this genealogy here and then we're going to start in the New Testament with Matthew and we're going to do it again. I mean, I would say uh, it's very often that genealogies are trying to provide continuity, hmm. trying to say we're connected this people before and we now uh, as the audience of this are the same people yeah. and we're connected. Thinking about the genres. So if we have 86 today, it's an arbitrary number, like how many mattered, you know, to the, to the ancient Near East, you know, the, the Jews at the time, like if we're talking about the, the different genres that they're reading mm-hmm. and then yeah. how do I know that? Like as, as a, as an, as a normal people, like how would I know? Like how, how is that even possible? Yeah, well, you know, and this is where it's it's helpful, but it also can be tricky because our translators do that work for us. So like uh, we had Robert Alter on the podcast not too long ago, mm-hmm. and he just spent 20 years retranslating the whole Old Testament. And he, he one of his points he made was like, he doesn't like modern translations because they think that we're all dumb. So they make all these decisions for us rather than just letting the text be what it is. They sort of interpret it for us. And so anytime seems so small, you know, you talked earlier about what does it matter, what order the books are in, but you don't even think about it when you open to Psalm and you see that it's formatted in a different way. It's set off like poetry. Mm -hmm. Well, that genre triggers a reading strategy. When you see that, just like if you hear the rustling of a newspaper and it looks like a newspaper and it's on that thin paper and it's folded that way and it's black and white and you see the picture in the headline, you think news. And so you're going to read it in a certain way that says news. That's very different than when you get to the part of the newspaper that's in color and there's these boxes that go across and you think, oh, comic, that's a comic. So it's, it's like almost subconsciously we've changed our reading strategy without even thinking about it. Hmm. And the same is true when we see these, these things that tip us off in the Bible, like, oh, now it's not in paragraph form. It's center justified and it's line by line. We think poetry, and sometimes that's accurate. And there's some places in the Bible that's debatable. Like, is this, is this poetry or is this prose? And even that, I'm not sure. There's definitely some markers that they had something like poetry in the Hebrew Bible, but it doesn't look like ours. And some some of those places are debatable hmm. uh, whether this is poetry or whether it's prose. This might be a question for like a Robert Alter, but there can't be a best version of the Bible because they're all going to have a bias in the translation. And so if we're going to read 
either, you know, uh, you know, the Apocrypha or the New Testament or the Old Testament, like how do we, how do we nuance that? Like, do I just need to get 17 versions of the Bible and read them all and figure out who's treating me less stupid? Who's, you know, just looking for commonalities? Like how would one even go about doing that? Uh, because I know most people, like I do know who Robert Alter is, but most people won't. Or I do know through, you know, David Bentley Hart redid the New Testament, but most people won't. Most people are just going to go pick up that red leather bound in Barnes and Noble mm-hmm. and then sit down with it. Yeah. And I think that's okay. I mean, I think most New Testament, trans- and this is where I am, I'm not going to be a snob. Like, I think that's okay. I, I do think the better translations or publishers of Bibles will footnote when they've made these decisions. So if you're reading the footnotes and you're reading, that's that's probably the best you'll get is being able to, I think uh, some of these things are just, they become apparent when you read the Bible really carefully. Mm. And I think that's that's really the challenge is you don't have to be, you don't have to be a scholar to realize that in, that the days of creation don't match mm. um, and that there's contradictions in the two creation narratives. You don't have to be a, a Hebrew scholar to just, know that because you can see that in English, (laughs) you know, and the same with noticing that David kills Goliath and then Elhanan kills Goliath. Like you can read that in English. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's not so much, do we know Hebrew? It's, have we been reading our Bible carefully or do we allow, we, we usually inherit a certain framework for what the Bible is, what these stories mean from a very young age. And so I think we kind of turn our brains off by the time we're teenagers and in our 20s, and we no longer read the Bible carefully. We just reaffirm and concretize that interpretation we've always been receiving since we were kids. So I'm a big advocate for, you don't have to be a scholar, but if you take your time and just read the Bible carefully, you'll run into a lot of problems. Hmm. And I mean that in the best possible way. Hmm. No, I love the problems. Um, this shows a result of those problems. And there's a bookshelf full of binders of notes and notes and notes. The problems, the problems are where I find Jesus. Mm-hmm. But this is not a preaching show. How do I? So you have small kids as well. I saw one of them. I think recently do a backflip, which scared the crap out of me on Instagram. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I was. I don't know what I was expecting, but it was. And if you're listening, I don't know when it was, and I don't know that it matters. But you can just troll Jared's Instagram and. Yeah, that was like it terrifying. scared us too. We, I had no idea. It wasn't like he wasn't like hey. Watch me do a backflip. He just said, hey, watch this. Yeah. And then he did a backflip. So and I was like, oh. I found myself thinking about that the other day. Somehow I saw it again. I must have been flipping through something. And sometimes I get annoyed and I just hit it as fast as it can. And it rolls for 10 seconds. That had to have been the second take. Or did he say, get your phone, video this, watch this. Yeah, that was the this. second take. Yeah, that was the second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you've got small kids. I have small kids. I've got a 10 year old and a seven year old. And how do I make sure that I'm pouring into them scripture in such a way that they don't check out at 15 or 12 and stop reading scripture carefully? Uh, because I don't ever explain things well to my kids when they ask me a theological question, mostly because I'm realizing I don't really know the answer. And even if I did, there's probably three or four good ones and none of them that are right. Well, I think what you said, I'm just going to throw that back on you, is I think there's a way so that you find Jesus in the problems. I, I think if I you can find if you find the interesting thing in in the the warts and the imperfections of the text, we've just I didn't grow up that way. I grew up thinking that the prettiest, most perfect Bible is the good Bible. And I just think that's not true in love. That's not true like 
none of us have perfect spouses, but we come to love them, not like in spite of those imperfections, but because of them, mm-hmm. those become the most endearing things once we are committed and we stay in that and we, and we learn to love the people we see. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to learn to love the Bible we see. And over time, like that's what's interesting to me. I, those are the most engaging conversations I have with my kids when we point out things and when they say, well, God created this. And I'll say, oh yeah, in the first creation narrative, but in the second account, he's more intimate and he does it this way. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? There's more than, oh man, that blows their mind. And it becomes interesting again. Whenever, you know, questions mm-hmm. and uncertainties are interesting. And we don't always like them, mm-hmm. but they are very interesting. And so for me, to keep me interested in the Bible, even when I was a kid, it was those curiosities I kept coming back to of like, but why is that like that? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. If, I, if it all makes sense and we just have it all buttoned up, I'm going to get bored with it. My middle child the other day, maybe you'll get a kick out of this, was washing dishes and she looked at me, she's like, was Adam and Eve's last name Price? And I said, why? And she's like, well, our last name's Price. And if they all, I'm like, okay, no, I don't, no, no. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> so, uh, but it did, I just, I, I didn't even answer. I just laughed. Like, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was a naive question. Very funny, very truthful, but very funny. Yeah. I love using uh, maybe and perhaps. I use that a lot with my kids. Yeah. You have, because you're a big deal now, I think I saw it on that black book. You're writing a book sometime now, probably yesterday, yep. tomorrow. Yep, in the midst. Mm-hmm. And from what I've gleaned from social media and reading in the margins, you're apparently dealing with truth and epistemology. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't use that term, but yeah. Why? Because it's not for normal people. Oh, epistemology? Right. I didn't learn that word until I heard, an, maybe it was an episode of The Liturgist or Michael Gungor. He has a song called Epistemological Breakdown, and it sounds mm-hmm. like a robot. I don't know if you've heard it or not. No. Yeah, I'm not even going to try it here. I don't even know where it is, but they were talking about truth. And then you just hear a mix in. It was like a robotic, banjo-fied song that just said epistemological breakdown. And as it as it sang, it broke further down into dissonant chords. It was, it was beautiful. And then I was like, well, what the heck does this mean? When you say truth, um, what angle are you going at and what does that even mean? Because most people would say truth is relative to what I think is true. Uh, or Most if, people would say that? I think so. I think if most people, wow. I think most people would, would, if they were honest with themselves, they'll say that things are true. But the way that they act about things that are true is in deeply personal and has nothing to do with other people. I don't know that they would say it out loud, but they're saying it with the way that they live, myself included. So what do we mean when we say true? Yeah, well, you know, we're in an interesting time because we're also in a space with like alternative facts and people denying sort of scientific findings and evidence-based claims. So I want to be careful on that side of things that I I respect that and I want to um, not go against those things. But I also think we've made truth an idol, at Mm. least for me growing up in the church, that like what I was actually after was being certain about what's true. And that's what saves us. If we get the things right, if we get the facts right about Jesus raising up from the dead, that's where salvation is. And that's what Christianity is all about, is getting the facts right. Well, when we look at the Bible, 
it actually doesn't use truth in that way at all, or very rarely. Uh, primarily in in the Bible, at least, truth is a very ethical term. And truth is a verb. So you do truth. You walk in truth. It doesn't over talk about believing in the truth. Um, I mean, Jesus in John 14 says he is the truth. Hmm. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. What does that mean? Like, for some reason, we have we have immediately translated that to mean if you believe these facts about me, uh, then you get into heaven. But that's not actually what it says. It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, like, I, don't, I don't actually even know what that means. I don't know what it means for a person to be the truth. Hmm. And so what that, that's where it started for me, was thinking through, oh, Jesus is the truth. Uh, what? I, like it started short circuiting in my mind and I had an epistemological breakdown, if you will, <laughs> and started wondering, you know, and, and then even in our common sense. So what I, what I'm doing in the book is breaking down some of the common ways we use the word truth and, and helping us clarify that we often mean like facts. Um, so things, truth facts, but then we also mean things that are meaningful. So when we say things like that's true, that's true for me, or that, you know, speaking my truth, we're talking about things that are significant to us. And that's not the same thing as facts, but it's maybe not less important than facts. Um, and then there's also this thing called wisdom truth. And th- these are just common ways that we use that phrase. And so I trace that through the Bible and talk about how little the Bible talks about fact truths. It's really not interested in facts. It doesn't address them. It doesn't talk about facts as facts. I mean, that's a very enlightenment post sort of a rationalistic way of thinking about the world. Mm-hmm. And it's much more interested in the ethics of truth, truth as honesty, truth as integrity, truth as acts of righteousness. Those are what it means to be truthful. And, and so I, I try to recapture the, the ethics of truth telling. And it really is around this phrase that I get used uh, as a weapon I used it as a weapon and it was used on me as a weapon telling the truth in love. Hmm. And it basically, which meant the most important thing to do is tell the truth. And if you can try to do it in a kind way. Hmm. And I just think that's counter to what I see in the Bible. What place do facts hold then um, for the church today? If truth is the way that we act, you know, our, our, our practices as opposed to our doctrine and I'm probably using doctrine wrongly there, metaphorically comparing it to truth. And you can correct me if I am. But what what place do facts hold? Well, I think facts are. I think facts are important, but I think that they are subservient to love. Hmm. And so I think that's it's not which are more important. It's which one's driving, uh, which is to be master. And I think we've put. Again, idolatry for me is we've put nowhere, nowhere in the scriptures does it say God is truth. Uh, it says Jesus is truth, um, but it does say God is love. And, and so I think there's, there's something about a, a matter of emphasis and priority. So I do, I mean, I'm all about I facts. Um, you know, I taught philosophy. I've, I'm very interested in facts. Um, however, I think we've bought into this idea. I think from the from the right side of the spectrum and the left side of the spectrum, I call it the vending machine theory of facts. That somehow the world will be perfected when we get the facts about it right. And I think that's just a, a naive 
one-dimensional way of looking at the world. That's just not true. It's a very modernistic understanding of the world, but the world is a machine. It's like this Rube Goldberg machine that's perfectly set up. And if we just get the facts right, if we just put that quarter in the vending machine and we push the right numbers, out comes utopia. And I think that's that's a unnuanced mechanical view of the world, which would only be true if we were all robots and we're not robots. <laughs> and so I think that's important, but I think it's it's a not a good use of our energy and resource yeah. to be spending all of our talk. Uh, I mean, it goes even as basic as education with our emphasis on STEM. And it's all about getting these students to learn mathematics and engineering and technology and science. And these are the things that will lead to this utopia. And yet we have not taught civics and how to disagree and how to respect and how to show civility and how to be kind. Like, I think those are just as important. Um, and so I think it's just a matter of emphasis. One of the questions I get often is, you know, listeners are sitting in their churches and then they'll hear a sermon or they'll be talking after church at, you know, lunch or whatever, Cracker Barrel, because we're in the South, why not? And when someone says something that is truthful, but also entirely against, I would call the heart of God, like just is not, um, like the way that, you know, our country postures itself towards immigrants or that type of stuff. I the question I get often is, well, how do I then have a discourse in a loving way? Because mm-hmm. real quickly it devolves into uh, that side of the family goes to that restaurant and we're just going to stay here or whatever right. it is. Why, so Why do you think it devolves? Uh, I don't think, well, from what you said earlier, like people just don't know how to have arguments anymore. And I don't mean arguments in the yelling way. I, I mean arguments in let's structure uh, what I believe and why and leave space in the middle. But I don't know how to tell people to do that well. Like, I don't, like, how would you practice that? Well, I, I wouldn't ever tell someone how to do that. Um, I would just invite them to. Well, how it. do you do that? Um, I ask a lot of questions. And I, I ask a lot of questions because I always want to, f- I want to make sure that I understand first. Hmm. I want to understand at a deep heart level where people are and why they are the way they are. And I think that's just so important. A lot of people just want to be heard um, and, and they want to make sure that that you understand their argument and why they're saying what they're saying. So I, you know, there's a, a phrase I use a lot. It's just active listening, which is being able to repeat back to someone what you've heard and make sure that the other person agrees with your interpretation of what they're saying mm-hmm. before you say anything about your own opinions. Hmm. So I, I do that a lot of just saying, okay, let me make sure I'm hearing you right. Is this what you're saying? And if they say, no, 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 then I keep listening to them until I get their position right in a way that they would agree with it. Otherwise, we end up with these straw men where I'm arguing against something that they didn't even say. I'm just arguing against like the most extreme <laughs> example of what they've said. Yeah. And I find that really unhelpful because it also comes back to why are we even talking? Right. I don't, I don't talk to people to convince them of anything. I gave up on that a long time ago. I talk to people because I want to connect with them at a heart level. I want to be heard and I want to hear them. And and for me, if that's the goal, then there's not, as long as we're still talking, my goal is being met. Hmm. I don't need you to come to certain conclusions. I don't need you to want me to come to certain conclusions. I genuinely want you to feel heard and valued and I want to feel heard and valued. Um, so I think if we can keep those in mind, we could do a lot better with with the conversations. So then how do we take it 
past the conversations. And I do want to bubble back up to a rabbit trail that you were talking about with Utopia, because uh, I like rabbit trails, but I want to stay on this thread for a minute. So, you know, if I'm hearing you, and let's say that you and I are vehemently disagreeing on why the Cowboys are better than the Eagles. And so I'm mm-hmm. hearing you, you're hearing me, we understand the Oilers were a dumpster on fire. And so mm-hmm. that's that's why. Um, yeah. Except for Warren Moon, of course. Yeah, but, and then he went to Minnesota, and that... I mean, he lost any credibility because he went, it's like Emmett Smith going to the Cardinals. Like, why would, why, anyway. Um, So, like, I'm not going to bend, you're not going to bend, and it's trivial because it's sports. But when it's the way that we do church or women in ministry or the way that we raise children or the way Mm -hmm. that we do our politics or whatever matters to us at a deeper level than sports, if I'm understanding what you're saying, and I can genuinely see where you're coming from, and I just believe that you're lost your flipping mind. Yep. And the same, what then? Then, for me at least, I value being able to stay in your life hmm. over anything else. So it's fine. And and this is will get me into trouble, I think, sometimes with my more progressive friends. But I don't. I don't. I, the, always in the back of my mind, I have. Um, these pages from Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote this book called The Ethics of Ambiguity. And in there, it's it's very Nietzschean. So Nietzsche says, you know, be careful when you stare into the abyss that it doesn't stare back into you. Um, And Simone de Beauvoir in The Ethics of Ambiguity talks about these different kinds of people who engage in the world. And one of them, like, thinks they're doing good to build this sort of social revolution. But the means by which they do it is to undermine the whole goal. So if if the way I engage with you isn't building the kind of world I want to be in, then the ends don't justify the means because it's just not logical that I'm going to build a more loving world mm-hmm. by being angry and hateful. It yeah. just does even even if I think I'm right about any of it, um, that the process is just as important as the goal. And so you can't build you know utopia with dystopian tactics. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I always want to be the kind of person I always want to act in a way. Um, that is modeling the kind of world I want to be in. Yeah. So that's it for me is I, I, at the end of the day, I value most keeping people in my life and having them understand I love them and I value them. Yeah. So, so it doesn't matter. I mean, most of my family would disagree vehemently with most of my theology and most <laughs> of my politics. And that's okay. Like, it's okay mm-hmm. with me. Um, it's not okay that it sometimes can be discriminating and I don't condone, um, you know, racism or bigotry and mm-hmm. any of that. And so that's where it's, it, I bet I don't have to condone it to love people who aren't yet there. And it's also understanding that we're all on a journey. Like if, if I had people condemning me that I wasn't like supremely woke 15 years ago, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be where I am now. Yeah, uh, because that would have been such a turnoff, and I would have just retreated to my cave and like retrenched back into my beliefs. But instead, I had people inviting me into conversation and and being generous with me and being forgiving when I didn't understand something mm-hmm. and when I said the wrong thing and I used the wrong words. And that's what for me brings about change. Um, it's not the not the rigid um, lines that we draw, and and then we just get we draw so many lines that eventually we're the only ones in our own box. And the only person who actually agrees with me is me. I've never heard that. We draw so many lines. Where one are, is that you or is that somebody else? What? I don't know. We draw so many lines that we're the only people in our own box. 
Oh, I don't know. I just made that up. Yeah, I, I like it. I'm taking it. I'm sure. I mean, I don't think I have any original thoughts, though. I'm sure I've read it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm plagiarizing it from yeah. your plagiarism. No, I won't. Yes, I will. That's, that's what um, all scholarship is. It's just <laughs> plagiarizing. We just change the words a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, so I want to, I want to center on that word utopia. So when you say utopia, what I think about is heaven. And when I think about heaven, I think about shalom and the kingdom of God. Oh, that's good. I um, still think about like angels singing really boring songs and how I was so baffling as a kid. Like, why would anyone want to go there? I'm going to try this then. Why do you think that? What do I think? What? Wow. You, you said you, when someone says something disagree with you, try to ask more questions. I said, so I, th- I thought I would, I thought I would try that <laughs> about that, about the angels. Um, but that's what I think. And so when you say utopia, I'm assuming that you're saying that that's, you, you said it a few times. So that's like a goal, like ultimately all things, can we just call that reconcilement or, or am I, am I mis, misusing what you're, you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I'm saying that a lot of people, I think I would actually argue that utopia is not a good goal. Hmm. I think more uh, warfare and violence has happened in the name of utopia than anything else. Well, I don't mean utopia as a governmental sense. I mean it as a Jesus sense of reconciling this. How do you uh, do that without government? Oh, I don't know. Um, the, the I have no idea. The question I was going towards, though, is... <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Um, because I'm using utopia in a bad way because I'm not good at segues. Um, so... Is is if if I'm gonna here we go I'm gonna call Utopia the Kingdom of Heaven, okay. and so go is that something that uh, Christ is pulling us towards, or God is sending towards us? Oh, I think God's sending toward us for sure. If if we want to use that language, I mean, I really like Jesus saying the Kingdom of Heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, the kingdom of Heaven is here now, mm-hmm. and so to, I'm not one for um, I'm not one for teleology to use a not normal word. How many episodes of the Bible for normal people as of June 10th do you have? Like, what are y'all at? I think we're at 90. That's impressive considering you do less in the summer, right? Don't you? Yeah, we go every other week in the summer. Yeah, that's a good idea. I should probably try. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we'll hit, we'll hit, um, in September, we'll hit episode 100. What's the party going to be? We're doing it on Genesis, and it's coinciding with our launch, our relaunch of Genesis for Normal People, the book. Is there new stuff? Yeah, we're doing a second edition. It's it's slightly altered, um, but it, it's also hmm. starting um, a series of books that we want to publish in what that is, uh, for normal people. What does that look like? Um, so Genesis for Normal People is is that it's like a ninety page overview with a lot of sarcasm, sarcasm and snark um, <laughs> about what Genesis is about and what it's not about. And then we hope to publish soon thereafter, probably the next year, Exodus for Normal People. So Pete will be writing that one. Are you going to go through the whole Bible, all the way to Revelation we're for go Normal through People? The old, well, yeah, until we, until we get tired and don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Um, what has been the biggest change for you, you know, this many episodes in? So like, I don't, and I don't mean... And so I feel like people that run podcasts can hear it. And other people are like, you're much better on the mic. You say less ums. I can tell that you, you, there's things that when you have to edit one, you're like, oh, we're all getting better. Because it is hard to have a conversation with yourself. I mean, I can see you, but there's limited amount of FaceTime ability to have a genuine, you, you know what I mean? It's hard right. to do mm-hmm. that. So 
what has been the biggest thing for you though, personally, spiritually or whatever that you're like, yeah, because I'm doing this on a repetitive basis, it's causing me to engage in new ideas and it's changed this. Like, what would that be for you? Yeah, it's not, it's not changed my ideas. Again, I've been always very good at engaging with ideas. So my concepts are still pretty constant in terms of how I see the world. I think what's changed for me is the need to just be human and, and humanize this whole endeavor. Um, I have a tendency to live in my head mm-hmm. and just the amount of pastoral work. I think I underestimated the amount of pastoral work that's involved with doing the Bible for normal people hmm. because there's just a lot of people. And I say this a lot and I would say if it hasn't changed it, but it's definitely cemented that I feel like most people don't need supporting arguments. They need community. They need a place where they're not feeling so dang alone hmm. because that's usually once you change your mind about the Bible, you've essentially isolated yourself from your family, friends, and community. Hmm. And that is such a lonely place to be. Um, so just the the humanization of that, of not like I can be a bit of a trailblazer and a pioneer because I'm an eight on the Enneagram and I just will burn everything down. And, and I'm fine with that. But I recognize like <laughs> there are a lot of people who, are don't know what they're getting into until it's too late and just out of sincere questions that they have end up losing all kinds of relationships and that Mm. um i'm not okay with so yeah that's been more of my passion i think in this last year is how to come back around with people not get too far ahead and say hey it's okay like there are a lot of us here you thought you were going into the desert between Mm. you know you were getting kicked out of egypt you you thought there was going to be a promised land, but you didn't realize there's 40 years of desert wandering and helping them see like, well, this is more of a burning man, really. There's a lot of us out here and it's pretty great. So. Yeah, I would argue it is pretty great. And I agree about community. I've told many people often that I do as much, and we'll say air quotes, church um, in the community surrounding the show than I do sometimes at church, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of people at my church will listen. And I don't mean that as a, as an insult in any way, shape or form. This will be my last question and then we'll let you plug the places. So I had, um, your, who's more snarky. You were Pete. Well, Pete would argue that he is. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let him have that one. Oh, that's sweet of you. Um, so I asked him being that I've had you and then I had him and I've had you again. I said, does that make me a God ordained podcast on the internet to which he laughed and said, that's not up to me. That's, that's up to Jared. I believe that's what he said. And so, since I have Jared, um, does that make me a God-ordained podcast on the internet? Well, I think, you know, we have these little um, cards, like when you go to a coffee mm. shop and you have to get 10, you know, uh, <laughs> ten you have to get punches. 10 holes punched in your card. <laughs> so you've had me on twice and Pete once. I think you have to get 10 uh, uh, before you can be ordained. Is it just the two of you? Because that's going to take some time. Us, yeah. That's going to yeah. take some time. Yeah. It, I mean, you have to earn it. That's what like you a think decade of work. <laughs> that's like, these aren't gold stars here. <laughs> God ordained podcast. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> um, if I don't get, I'm going to send you my, if I don't get a card in the mail, Jared, I'm going to punch it myself. No, it's fine. <laughs> that should be something that you put on your Patreon, like send people. The, anyway, it's good. Where do people, uh, obviously the Bible for normal people, for some reason is at Pete Enz's website. I feel like y'all are dropping the ball there, but that's not my business. So, send people the place where they should go that to engage with you, the podcast, 
uh, check out stuff. When is your book coming out? Like, where, uh, it'll come out like that? next year. So it'll be it'll be a while. Some time. So you can get you can invite me on next next summer. Okay, and that'll be um that'll be another punch in your card. Yeah, and um, that'll put me at four. Put, not even four. not even halfway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so no i i mean um and, and there's a lot of reasons why we do that but yeah you can go to the bible for normal people.com mm-hmm. forward slash podcast if you want to go straight to the podcast mm-hmm. but it, I, overall i mean i think not this is a this is a shameless self-plug for sure but it's also uh where we we interact the most with people and that's on patreon mm-hmm. so um patreon.com front slash the bible for normal people and uh, we do book studies so we just did uh, Joel Baden on the historical David, and it just like blew people's minds, um, including mine at some points. I was like, oh, yeah, I went to seminary. I didn't learn that. Okay. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, we ruined David for people. And uh, we're about to start Luke Timothy Johnson's The Real, um, the real Jesus, the Historical Jesus, something like that. The Really uh, Historical so, Jesus. The Really, Really Historical <laughs> Jesus. Yes. So, uh, but yeah, we do book studies and we have a Slack group with about, mm-hmm. I don't know, four or 500 people on there that are just like chatting away all the time oh, man. Um, about the Bible and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, uh, yeah, we like to jump in there and, you know, we post every week different videos. We call it our rantings for normal people. Hmm. So um, yeah, check it out. Cool. Fantastic. Well, those links will be in the show notes. Jared, thank you again. I'm happy to get my third star. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I, I genuinely do hope to do it again. Um, thank you for for suffering sideways in your car, um, and and I and, and again it's my studio. Hey, don't yeah. give away my secrets here. <laughs> but but thank you again for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. so much for being here thank you for listening please remember to rate and view this show share it with your friends i'd love to hear your feedback at can i say this at church.com just hit the contact button there uh, follow the show on facebook and twitter and let me know what you think there uh, today's music is used with permission from danny o'callaghan his stuff is great you'll find links to him in the show notes and the tracks today on the can i say this at church spotify playlist I'll talk to you all next week I hope you're very blessed.
Zimna vas tam se 